Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's webinar. My name is Jasmin Slootjes. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Migration Policy Institute Europe, and we're all very happy to have you all with us here today. Uh, today's webinar is titled Mi Migrant Integration, Learning from What Works in Times of Uncertainty. And as the title already suggests, we will dive into topics of innovation in evidence-informed policymaking, but also how does this work in times of uncertainty or even in times of crisis and disruption. Um, before we get started, let's first go through a few housekeeping notes. If you have any technical problems, please email to events at migrationpolicy.org. Uh, and we will have a Q&A at the end of the call. So please type any questions into the Q&A or the chat box uh, or email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. Uh, thank you so much. Um, today's webinar marks the launch of a brand new report entitled Promoting Evidence-Informed Immigrant Integration Policymaking, which is available on MPI uh, Europe's website since today. This report really explores the state of play of how an evidence culture is being embraced in migrant integration uh, policymaking, but also it looks into the different obstacles that are preventing uh, the route towards working more evidence-based and learning from what works, and also identifies five strategies to overcome these obstacles. Migrant integration policies are often forged in the heat of crisis and are predominantly shaped by political priorities. In turn, often limited resources are devoted to evaluating policies and practices. As a result, uh, lessons from some of the most promising innovations which often tend to emerge in times of crisis. So whether that is maybe COVID-19 or 2015, 2016, or the current displacement of people from Ukraine, uh, all these lessons often tend to get lost. And this is incredibly problematic because knowing what works and under which conditions and how to use this knowledge to improve policies and achieve the goals that we set uh, is crucial uh, to the design for more effective migrant integration policies. And not embracing this evidence culture may come at a very high human, financial, and also a societal cost. And this is not only for migrants, but also for governments and for host societies. So walking through some of the many benefits uh, that embracing a more evidence-informed approach would have is that it promotes good governments, it facilitates institutional learning, uh, accountability, and of course, also it promotes the cost-effective use of public funds because it doesn't only show what works, but also uh, what policies work in the most efficient way for the least amount of funding. So we can use funding in the most efficient and effective way. Moreover, as I already mentioned, uh, having the evidence allows us to shape policies that actually work, so that actually truly promote labor market integration or language attainment. And achieving these policy goals benefits everyone in society, not only migrants themselves, but also society at large. Um, and also through achieving these policy goals, uh, and it's sometimes a bit forgotten and bringing more evidence into the political debate, the debate uh, it may be, a little bit of an antidote to this very polarized and very politicized debate that we often have about migration and migrant integration. So not surprisingly, if we look around, we see 
uh, a true evidence revolution uh, across policy areas, yet migrant integration is falling behind. It's really not uh, keeping up maybe with some of the other policy areas like development or health, where we see this huge surge uh, of working more evidence-based. So if we really assess where we are with migrant integration, we do see lots of progress. Uh, we see especially institutions like the European Commission really championing a more knowledge-based approach. Uh, and of course, we see uh, an enormous uh, surge of research uh, and also the development of different indicators for to measure the policies themselves, but also measure the outcomes. But we do still miss uh, research that really links policies to migrant integration outcomes. And the few evaluations that we do have, uh, or projects that are being conducted, those evaluations are often not being shared with other actors or across countries, or the lessons that come out of these evaluations are sometimes not being implemented. So we see a lot of innovation, a lot of progress, but also a lot of room for improvement. Um, so why is this really the case? Why is it so complicated to make more progress uh, with this evidence-informed policymaking initiative and migrant integration? Uh, there are many, and uh, I recommend reading the policy brief to really go through the full analysis, but just some key points that make it particularly tricky in migrant integration are on the one hand, how complicated and multifaceted the topic or the concept of migrant integration is. Um, it, there's multiple aspects uh, related to migrant integration. It's not just being employed or learning a language, but it's also about uh, feelings of belonging or are you able to navigate the healthcare system, social contacts. Um, so there's, it's very multifaceted and it makes it very difficult to measure. And sometimes a project that may focus on labor market integration may have an excellent impact on social contacts, for example, but this may not be measured. Uh, another issue is that we uh, see is that programs and projects are often short term, whereas the outcomes and the true impact can only be measured on the long term. Uh, so this, is, this can really complicate the process. And another thing that we see is that there's very frequent shifts, not only in the policy goals, but also in the target groups that are being targeted, uh, and even in the stakeholders or the ministries that are responsible for implementing the policy. Um, so this makes it, if, if you keep changing the goals, how do you even measure if they've been achieved, right? Because the goals keep changing. Uh, and then, of course, as I already mentioned, it's often the policies are often forged in the heat of crisis. So when you're in a crisis response, your first priority is welcoming people, providing shelter. Uh, but there is no time to set up a randomized control trial or a full evaluation program. So this complicates the process, of course. And one very important factor that I already mentioned uh, previously is how politicized the debate is. And this politicization uh, further decreases the, the political willingness to invest uh, in evidence-informed policymaking. And maybe to conclude, and there's many more I could touch upon, is it's a very complex playing field. It cuts across levels of governance, across policy areas, uh, inside government, outside of government. So different people, different stakeholders have different pieces of the puzzle. Uh, so it's very important to involve all stakeholders throughout this evidence-informed policymaking process. Um, however, it's not only doom and gloom. I know I've just been listing lots of obstacles, but it doesn't mean that there is no road or path towards 
working and implementing policies that actually work in migrant integration and setting up the context that facilitate creating more evidence and implementing that evidence. We have different, uh, we see a lot of innovation and some of this innovation will be touched upon uh, by our speakers today. Uh, and even in times of crisis, and often I think crisis can spark most interesting innovations. Moreover, we list five interesting strategies uh, in the policy brief that, uh, for example, focus on the use of pilot projects, but also using uh, tiered funding models uh, and also uh, on building capacity. Um, so definitely uh, have a look at this policy brief. But I'm very excited here today uh, to have three excellent speakers with us, uh, with whom we can really dive a little bit deeper into this conversation and really hear stories both at the European level, also the, the member state level, and also at the city level, and really kind of reflect on what is the space for innovation and uh, the space, how does it work in times of uncertainty and crisis. So as I already mentioned, the European Commission has really been championing this knowledge-based approach. Uh, and they, for example, have the Joint Research Center on, uh, uh, and they also have the Knowledge Center on Migration and Demography. So we have with us today, Claudia Spinelli, who works for the European Commission's Joint Research Center. Uh, and I'm very curious, Claudia, um, could you tell us a little bit more about this Joint Research Center? and the role it plays in making migrant integration policies more evidence-informed. Hello, thank you, Jospin. First of all, thank you for, for this introduction, introduction uh, to the briefing, which uh, I'm really curious to read, and thank you to the Immigration Policy Institute to invite the, the JRC to be here. So as you, as you said, I work for the Joint Research Center, which is the in-house science and knowledge service of the European Commission. So our center is part of the European Commission itself and its mission is exactly to support the European Commission in designing policies based on evidence. So we provide scientific and knowledge support to the European Commission throughout the whole policy cycle. And how do we do that? So we do that uh, uh, in two different ways, which is in one way, creating new knowledge, so performing analysis. We, had a lot, we have a lot of researchers and uh, policy analysts who carry out, carries out research across virtually all policy areas because we support the European Commission in all policy areas. And we also help and support the Commission in uh, accessing knowledge, so managing knowledge which exists and which is produced outside of the European Commission. And I'm sure most of you have experienced this, the overload of information and data, sometimes it's really hard to navigate. So one of the tasks that the Joint Research Center has is also to try to make uh, sense out of this knowledge and help policymakers to actually access this knowledge. And as you mentioned, one of the services, one of the uh, initiatives that the European Commission has is uh, uh, knowledge centers. So knowledge centers are this virtual entity which brings together knowledge from outside and inside the Commission, and they're run and coordinated by the Joint Research Center as the scientific support to the, to the Commission. And on the topic that we are dealing uh, with today, uh, we have one knowledge center, which is uh, specifically on uh, migration and demography. So we will share uh, in, in the chat link uh, you can access. You can see that it's really um, a um, virtual entity, which uh, has the function of a one-stop shop. So one entry point where policymakers can actually access scientific knowledge and the latest scientific developments and data on specific policy teams. 
And I would say on specific poli policy areas, uh, keeping in mind that often policies and uh, challenges are interconnected and so they cut across different policy areas as you, Yasmin, were, were mentioning. Great, thank you so much, Claudia. And it's really interesting to see also, also at the, the European Commission on the EU level, uh, they're trying to bring in evidence uh, into the policymaking process. So previously I was mentioning how at times evidence can form a little bit of an antidote in the bit more toxic debate at times about migration. Uh, so thinking about the role of the Joint Research Center, could you maybe give an example of how evidence can play a role in this broader narrative about migrant integration especially in a time of disruption or crisis, like for example, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, thank you for, uh, for the question, Yasmin. So of course, as I, as I mentioned, the, the Joint Research Center supports the Commission in normal times across the, the policy cycle uh, in normal times to design and to craft uh, initiative and policies. It does so also in time of crisis and disruption, which of course are unforeseen and have a huge impact on societies. The one, as you mentioned, that was exactly the, the COVID-19. So uh, I'm sure uh, it's still fresh in, in our memories how the, the COVID uh, crisis led to uh, shut down large part of, uh, of the economies and that had an impact on also uh, the um, uh, labor uh, um, uh, functioning of our of our societies, the functioning of the economies and the societies. A lot of workforce uh, was uh, uh, was able to work at home. We were some of the people who were able to work at home, but of course, some essential services had to to keep running, and so some key workers had to to contribute to make sure that European citizens could access these uh, essential uh, essential uh, services in uh, economy and societies. And so one of the study of the Joint Research Center, which was performed by uh, our researchers in the Knowledge Center on Migration and Demography, uh, tried to analyze it to understand what was the uh, contribution that migrant workers uh, gave during the time of crisis, during this COVID crisis, and try to see what, what kind of contribution they gave in these uh, key sectors to keep the economy and the society running. And so uh, one, one example that I can mention is this study that uh, we will also share and you can, uh, you can access because you can also access all the, the publication of the Joint Research Center on our website, was exactly uh, seeing and uh, um, showing how uh, migrant workers, both EU migrant workers and third country national uh, migrant workers were essential in uh, keeping basic service running within the uh, European uh, societies during the, the COVID crisis. So this, uh, this study showed, uh, for instance, that 13% uh, of all key workers were uh, EU migrants, and so uh, they were actually essential in uh, uh, helping uh, Europe to, to cope with the crisis, to uh, respond to the crisis, and, and, and of course, uh, in some ways, let's say that this time of crisis uh, highlighted the, the importance of labor integration of, uh, of migrants in our societies to keep running our societies and to actually keep them functioning. So this is one of the, of the many examples and many studies that uh, were carried out by, by our researchers that uh, try to uh, keep, in some way, try to understand what were the evidence and the data and what was the um, contribution of migrant workers to, during this time of crisis. Great, thank you. Yeah, and it also shows that evidence is not only informing, of course, the actual policies, but also the broader debates and the broader narratives about migration, which of course indirectly shape 
the political landscape that again uh, inform uh, policies. So um, to kind of draw our attention a little bit more to the current situation uh, with Ukraine and the huge displacement of, of uh, people from Ukraine, um, could you maybe give an example of a tool or work that the Joint Research Center has done uh, to inject evidence in a time of disruption like this one um, and to help member states welcome uh, displaced people from Ukraine? Sure, thank you for the question. So. As I was mentioning before, I was saying that one of the uh, one of the mission uh, of the Joint Research Center and of our Knowledge Center on Migration and Demography is also trying to help policymakers to access data, to access evidence, which sometimes feels overwhelming and it's really difficult to navigate. And there are different uh, data coming from different sources, and the amount of knowledge is really overwhelming and difficult to, to cope with. So one of the things that our researchers do in uh, in the Knowledge Center of Migration and Demography is also uh, creating tools that allow policymakers to actually access uh, data and visualize data in, uh, in an easier way. So uh, make sure to bridge in some way this gap that sometimes exists between science and policy and like enable policymakers to actually access uh, data and evidence that they need for, for their for their for the policy making. One of the tools that, uh, that I can mention, one example that I can mention is the Atlas of Demography, which has been developed by our researcher in the Knowledge Center of Migration and Demography. And uh, this is a, an interactive tool which allows and brings together different data sets. So it brings together data on demography uh, from uh, Eurostat, but also data produced by the Joint Research uh, Centers. And uh, it allows to navigate and to, and to surf through this data and to visualize the maps and charts and so to make this data understandable for policymakers which sometimes are, are not experts in, in the field and so need to, to have uh, information which are digestible and synthetic and easy to access. And in this tool, in this interactive tool, which is constantly updated, you have a section which is on data, and then you have also a thematic uh, sessions with thematic stories when uh, the tool enables you to delve into different topics. And one of these topics, if you access the, the platform, is if you access uh, the, the Atlas on Demography that you can access online through our, our website, you will see that there is, for instance, one section on the Ukraine populations in uh, the European Union at the moment. So this allows you to to surf and see the data to see, to see the data on population of Ukraine to see how population of Ukraine is uh, present in the different uh, EU member states and so this is a tool that allows policymakers to access this kind of data and in some way can give also an indication on where the displaced people that are fleeing Ukraine uh, in in search of safety and security will most likely go because they might rely on what is the networks of uh, of uh, the networks of Ukrainians which is already present in the European Union so this is one of the tools that is really a concrete tool to help and and make data and uh, accessible to policymakers and understandable to policymakers i think this is a, a great uh, tool that has been developed by our researchers no that's a great initiative and i i really like claudia you're saying like I mean, data is very interesting and I, I personally love data, but it doesn't mean that a, a, a table filled with numbers is very accessible and easy to use and visualizing or finding other ways to communicate evidence can be really helpful to make it helpful for policymakers to use in their day-to-day -day work. Uh, and also I think the work that you 
done with this, this tool to gather data from different sources, right? Because everyone collects data in their own cities and their own regions and to bring this all together in one place and make it comparable. So I think that's really uh, great. Thank you so much, Claudia. Um, so now moving uh, to a different part of the conversation, uh, because we just heard about initiative at the EU level. Uh, now we're going a little bit more to the national level. Uh, and I would like to welcome to the floor Jurgen Wander. Uh, you are the program manager, uh, but according to me is one of the more, or I'd say maybe most innovative evidence-informed policymaking initiatives in the field of migrant integration. Uh, we've been looking around and we haven't found that many of these types of initiatives. Uh, and we would love to hear more about all the innovations uh, in this particular project. So could you tell the audience more about the Foreign Inclusive Labor Market or VIA program and maybe what makes it so successful or unique? Yeah, well, thank you very much. First of all, thank you for organizing this really interesting um, webinar and uh, giving me the opportunity to say something about our uh, beautiful program. I try to limit myself in the time because I can talk for days about this, but um, I think I've gotten about seven minutes uh, in total, so uh, I will try to keep myself limited to that. But yeah, the, 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 the Foreign Inclusive Labor Market Program, or what it was called before, the Further Integration into the Labor Market Program. Um, we started this program about five years ago um, as, like a, as a national uh, effort to improve the labor market position of migrants and their children. And this was needed because um, we saw the statistics and um, we saw that people with a migrant background in the Netherlands and their children, so it's uh, first generation and second generation, are in general two to three times more uh, unemployed than people without a migrant background. And um, even if they are employed, we see that their contracts are far um, are, are not as good and their, their opportunities to grow are limited. So something needed to be done. But um, we wanted this uh, um, effort from the national uh, government level. I'm, I'm working for the Ministry of Social Affairs and Employment in the Netherlands. Um, we wanted it to be evidence-based. But while looking for what policies are evidence-based, we found out that there is very limited knowledge about what really works. So um, in order to create this evidence, we created a pilot program which ran for the last four years um, with, a few, with, with, with a number of pilots, eight pilots in total, with I think about 25 um, sub-pilots to create this evidence-based um, uh, evidence base of effective policies. And, we did these pilots at phases in people on, on phase of people's careers where we see that, that the problems occur. So from a transfer of school to the labor market um, for people who are um, recently migrated their entry into the labor market, but also um, getting from welfare or getting from the, being, being dependent on welfare, getting to work, um, but also getting hired by employers because we also see that there is labor market discrimination um uh, uh with employers so we researched um on several pilots and we did this really in a, in a way that we created evidence um with where possible randomized control trials and what makes it unique is that we set up every we set up every pilot in 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 the same way and it was like there were three special aspects to that uh, first of all with every pilot we used and special evaluation framework, which is really tailored towards the pilot in order to really um, gain as much knowledge from it as possible. The second one is that we did it in co-creation with all the stakeholders. So we did not really, we did not from the ministry level think like, oh, we should test this. 
No, we worked together with municipalities, with employers, with schools um, to create um, interventions and policies that are really close to um, uh, their world and, uh, and that they are really also, uh, it's, it's part of their day-to-day -day business. So uh, in order, because um, that's, that's, a, that's a third um, uh, aspect that we want to highlight is that we aimed every pilot at a, um, uh, uh, for a future skill up. So we did not, we, we started the pilots already with the aim of when it's effective, we want to scale it up. So that you really need to think um, from the start uh, uh, about how can you scale it up? What is uh, necessary for a scale up? So in this way, we were able to um, uh, start a project uh, and um, gain uh, over the last four years, gain a, a, a huge body of knowledge of evidence-based um, policies. It was a bumpy ride because uh, randomized control trials in social settings are very difficult. Um, most pilots gave us evidence, um, but uh, some pilots also failed uh, and we counted already for that. Um, and what we found out as well is that the skill up does not go automatically. So um, we're now in the second phase. The first phase of our program was creating this evidence base. The second phase um, is the skill up. Um, and the skill up does not go automatically. So we created a, um, um, a platform or a working agenda with the 20 most prominent national stakeholders, which is uh, social partners, uh, municipalities, NGOs. And we made it, we set an agenda for the next five years in which we work together, also in co-creation, um, to uh, skill up and implement um, the successful uh, uh, evidence-based policies. And this agenda is flexible, and we also set it up, in, like I said, in co-creation. And the aim is not to work anymore in pilots or in projects, but really create structural change at the level of employers, at the level of municipalities, at the level of schools, in order to um, create um, better and equal labor market opportunities for migrants and their children. Great, thank you, Jurgen. And yeah, it's just such a fascinating project. So I, I encourage everyone to reach out to Jurgen, or there's some English information as well available online to, to learn more about this project. But what I would still like to ask you is, because um, you already mentioned a little bit, okay, there were field pilots. Uh, so what does this entail? And what are the other lessons that you've learned from, from this uh, fascinating project and especially lessons that could be interesting for the people with us here today in the room. What can they learn from your experience running this program? Yeah, I forgot to mention some of the some, some examples of the of the projects we uh, the pilots. Uh, one of them is that we uh, um, did a test on how to objectify the recruitment and selection process with employers. And this really is we have we, we did a lot of research and we haven't found any other uh, research worldwide which really uh, looked at how can you create equal opportunities in this recruitment and selection process in which you have a large uh, horn and halo effect usually. And with now many employers being uh, in the Netherlands being largely white or, and, and male, um, it's very hard for uh, uh, people of color to, uh, and migrant, uh, other migrants to um, get a spot with an employer. And if you objectify this process through, uh, uh, well, we, we, we found evidence that uh, some of the steps you can take, and I will not elaborate on that, but you can objectify this process and give equal opportunities to everyone who is applying for a job. Um, we also tested how um, uh, learning the language, learning the skills while being on the job for new migrants can, can help to solidify their position on the labor market. 
So they get a they, they get language training, they get a, a diploma, and they get a job. And this is really uh, um, uh, uh, we we found evidence on how how can you set up these trajectories with employers with municipalities in order to to have to 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 yeah to make it work. Um, and what we learned uh, lessons of of running a program like this is that that for example political backing was very important. Um, our former minister who set up uh, uh, this program or we set it up with him. Um, he really was fond of it, and he really gave us the room to experiment. Um, so he was not continuous, continu constantly uh, uh, um, uh, trying to change a program because of political wishes. He said, "Like, no, I'm going to uh, uh, leave this program alone for four years, give it some funding, and give it time, and uh, uh, we will see what, what goes of it." So we really had this political backing. Um, and what really helped us all is that we had a budget for all the researchers, of course, never enough. Uh, and we had and we had this time also not enough, but it, it created a, a, a space for us to to experiment and to really carry on with the project. We also had um, quite some you know, resistance uh, carrying out this pro pro program, especially from from our stakeholders from the field. Um, not all municipalities or employers were waiting for were were. were, were happy to conduct randomized control trials and really get their policies tested because oh, if, if they're doing something and investing money in it and it turns out not to be effective, they've got a political problem. Um, and what really helped us to, to persuade them to join us in, in our efforts is that we had, had a lot of statistics at hand. So we could show them like, oh, if you don't, you, like we, we've got a lot of statistics about the labor market uh, position of migrants, especially also on the local level. Hmm. So we could go to municipalities and say, oh, well, you've got 60% of, um, of the people who depend on welfare in your municipality have a migrant background, while they only um, make up 10% of the labor market force. You've got a problem. If this is, a, this is already a political problem for you, so you better do something about it to, and test what works in order to, uh, to, to, to well, uh, create solutions. So this, this, this really helped us as well. Um, and we see right now that the implementation of effective policies is also something that is not going automatically. Um, <clears throat> to, to get, like, we're working with a lot of local, uh, a lot of national umbrella organizations, we are the national government, and to really make it trickle down to um, the local implementation takes time and often takes more time than our current political leadership um, has. <clears throat> so you see that that when the tension uh, is rising, especially with Ukraine, uh, um, also we see now a large influx of um, asylum seekers in the Netherlands. Uh, we see that low, at the local level, a lot of um, organizations resort again to pilots and to <clears throat> projects outside of the system but we need to have a structural change and that's what we are aiming for. So this is really a balance we are constantly um, having to deal with. No, th thank you so much for, for sharing uh, this project. And I see there's lots of interest in the chat of people that want more information. Uh, so Jurgen, I don't know if you have a link that you can share. In any case, in the policy brief, there's a full uh, box and kind of a case study dedicated to this project. And it's more focusing on the how uh, the lessons we can learn for promoting this evidence culture, uh, but there's many more interesting uh, details. So definitely follow up with Jorgen if you're interested uh, in that. Um, 
so if we think about the project that we just heard about, it was like multiple years, we heard funds, we had backing from a minister. So it sounds like kind of the best case scenario, although there's always uh, room for more time and more funding uh, and there's still challenges, of course. Uh, but now I wanna shift our attention to a situation that is very different and also much more challenging where maybe there's no space for a project like this. So I'd like to introduce uh, to the floor, uh, Tomasz Pastra. He's the director of the Projects and Social Affairs Department uh, at the city of Warsaw. Uh, and yeah, you are one of the advocates of more of an agile management approach. So also kind of taking a bit more of an innovative approach. Uh, and I'm very curious, what are the challenges and opportunities of such an approach to promote this evidence culture in migrant integration? And maybe later on, I would be very curious to hear how does this play out in the current challenge of welcoming so many displaced people from Ukraine. Uh, Warsaw has been welcoming hundreds of thousands of people from Ukraine. So how does that play out in such a challenging context? The floor is yours, Tomasz. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation. And it's really a pleasure to, 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 uh, to listen to another speakers and, and take part within this discussion. I'm not a researcher. I work on the front line responsible for the social policy at the city of Warsaw. And since I'm not a researcher, I prepared a PowerPoint presentation so that I can explain how we actually use the data in order to tackle that, uh, that crisis. Um, can you see the presentation? Okay, thank you very much. So, so let, let, let me start with the, uh, with the, okay, I can't change the presentation. Uh, with with the samples which uh, our department uh, uh, insists our department of strategy analysis insists to underline that this is not a professional data but anyway when when ukrainians came and we didn't know nothing about that we just know the numbers of approximate numbers of the refugees within the um, uh, cars of the rail uh, we had to actually uh, shape our strategy uh, to tackle that, that, that crisis. And we, we did it by asking people, ordinary people, like that samples is just uh, made uh, nearly uh, uh, by nearly 200 um, people who are queuing to register themselves in, in, in the process. And basing on that, actually, I made some assumptions. So, so, uh, so it was just really important for me. But our strategy department said it's not professional. So we based our strategy, at least me, on unprofessional data. From that data, actually, some of these figures uh, I actually checked because we, for instance, we know how many people are in reception centers, etc. So we can compare. And uh, so the, the the mistake wasn't that big. Anyway. From that data, I knew that more than 58% of refugees in the city of Warsaw at that time, based on that samples, had actually uh, uh, no problem with housing issue, which is really important for me, even if I made, made mistakes uh, about a couple of percent. This is, this is really important information for me. What else? I figured out that nearly 30% of the people, adult people, have actually uh, some contacts with the with the employers. So that makes me thinking about the crisis differently. If I, for instance, think about those numbers, hundreds of people who potentially would be unemployed. 
Another, another good example of how we deal with the data is obviously that we have to establish our proper database. Obviously it takes time. So before that we use samples, but since we establish uh, within one month uh, data database, I have a full access to the database every day with a clear information about how the, uh, uh, let's say, uh, let's say our refugee look like and what kind of programs we have to prepare for them. And if you see in this uh, graph of the age structure, it's normal up to the teenagers, but when it comes to the adults, obviously it's different, uh, more women than, than men. And basing on that, obviously it's just more, more information about our refugees. We can actually prepare our integration programs. Uh, okay, another, another example was the, uh, we, we have to take care about uh, our refugees within shelters, only 2000, by basing on that information, if we repeat the survey, we can compare at least tendency of the people. From that information, for instance, we figure out that there are a number of children unattended, I would say, to, are not accessed to make decision for online learning. So that we actually, so basing on that graph, uh, for instance, taking from our shelters, uh, the number of people we test uh, here is 2000 maximum. We figure out, for instance, there is a gap between the children who are in our schooling system and the, uh, the exact figure of children. So we're expecting really a thunderstorm in September. However, we figure out that just most of them are online. So, and, and also from that number numbers on the right uh, hand side on, on down there, number of nurseries, we, we know that we've got 4,000 children at that age, but only 250 attend to the nursery. We didn't know why. That's why we actually organize seminars and we actually um, trying to learn from each other um, why that phenomena mm, is going to take place or is, is being placed. Uh, and, and, and apart from that, we actually, actually also combine data, normal data, tendency, and et cetera. Uh, sorry, this presentation, next slide. So we organize meetings to verify data, to learn from each other with NGOs. We contract to uh, implement integration programs, seminar with international organization with whom you actually make overall decision about how to how to uh, prepare the programs uh, and also we had really separate meetings with working groups uh, shelters where and um, international NGOs actually cover the uh, most of the expenses and also when it comes to the agile way we we had a steering committee at the city level to uh, sort it out the the problems the, for for all all of, of you who are aware of the agile it's just the backlog daily meetings and etc. So this this kind of approach we did. We had a lot of initial bottom bottom up initiatives and it just created chaos. So our main task was just to organize that, organize that help just to divide them on on pieces and actually uh yeah organize that. So solutions to to make the story short to end up is just the together with the crisis these days we have a lot of resources and if you communicate it properly you can have more resources. Resources when it comes to the people, resources when it comes to the money and the other goods. So you can you can actually deal with that. Sorry.
And another example is just the plan that you will definitely have those resources, which was quite a new, uh, uh, unique for the public because uh, like just give you an example, we've got uh, 14,000 uh, volunteers. When I calculate, they actually offered offer us more than 1 million hours. We, we, we can use to actually uh, help people to feed, to, 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 to make a uh, better place to sleep. And obviously if somebody serve you, if, you, if somebody uh, give you something, you have to serve it professionally. It's obvious for all NGOs, but it's not that obvious for the public sector. And then uh, just at the end, leave a space for constant improvement. We are not expert. We just wanted to build a community, learning community. So we sometimes explain, we just provide the NGOs, for instance, data, and we're trying to explain the phenomena. And usually, for instance, in that case, uh, um, Ukrainian refugees who are involved in explain us the situation. So that was really clear to us. Thank you very much from my side. It's just uh, uh, another researcher. So I just wanted to just point it out how we actually use the data to tackle up the problem the problems and uh, I have to tell you that for instance 57 percent of people employed within first three months was a street uh, uh, policy uh, to not to uh, not to integrate them within shelters but to designate disintegrate them in uh, basing on our inhabitants resources thank you very much Thank you so much, uh, Thomas, for really kind of showing this real life example and also ongoing example of uh, how data and evidence can inform uh, the current approach, but also how the, the I guess some of the challenges, because I think you, what you were repeating a few times, this is not a, a professional, maybe scientific sample, but I think uh, in such all information is so valuable when you're trying to develop a response in such a situation, you, you, you gather all information that you have. And of course you, you are aware of the limitations, uh, but you still try to use as much as you can. Um, I would like to have a small follow-up question because you did uh, touch upon uh, working a little bit uh, on this agile approach. And I was wondering if you could uh, explain that a little bit more. So what is this agile approach and what, uh, how could this benefit uh, embracing an evidence culture in migrant integration? Okay, thank you very much for the question. I mean, uh, the traditional uh, project manager life, uh, life cycle is that you plan something, identificate the problem, and then uh, thinking about financing issue, and then concentrate on implementation, and there is also always time for evaluation, and etc. This is just... Obviously, there are some other traditional methodology, but it's just, 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 just to give you an example. But when it comes to this, you have to actually exclude the planning. You have to exclude the uh, financing because you have to actually deal. Sometimes at the beginning, we had to deal with without financing, and uh, and uh, we we had a name. We didn't have data. We just have to um, deal with the with with, with the crisis. So the same as in agile way, we have a name. We didn't have a precise uh, information about activities. So we create our the system of the getting our together, uh, having uh, creating the sort of a backlog, at daily meetings, so that we could have the uh, uh, we can make a decision about what to do during this day 
and what is the perspective of the let's say two weeks uh, so in other words we have to have a short-term aims uh, uh, and it's exactly from, from the uh, agile way of the management i don't want to go into deeply in, into details but how, however there are some clear evidence that agile way is the only way if we plan it traditionally we don't have resources, etc. It is actually the problem with getting money from the EU perspective, because uh, if we want to have a money directly to the cities, it takes a lot of times because of the traditional way of the management. Uh, and uh, so that, that's why we apply for the direct uh, access to the to resources when a crisis comes. Yes, thank you, Thomas. And I think what you're saying is is. Uh... Is, is really especially relevant when I I've been using this phrase like migrant integration is, is forged in the heat of crisis. But in those cases, right, it's, uh, we, have, we have different contexts in which we develop these policies and programs. And if we think about the situation in the Netherlands and the program that Jurgen was describing, uh, there was a lot of planning involved and there was space for planning and it's great. And I think, of course, that is uh, maybe preferable if it's possible to have the time to plan, to evaluate, to have the funding, but in times when this is not possible, and I think this very often is the case, I think this very much more agile approach is very promising and it could be very interesting to kind of explore case studies like how to apply this in a more kind of migrant integration setting uh, and how to bring evidence into the story, of course. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, much, uh, Thomas. We've received lots of questions from the Q&A. So I would like to open the floor for Q&A. We already received lots of them. So please uh, send them uh, in the chat box uh, if you have any more. One more general question that I thought was really fascinating and I'd kind of like to pose to all of our panelists and maybe starting with Thomas uh, is, to reflect on, we were talking about how evidence can maybe form this antidote in this very polarized, de politicized debate. Uh, yet politics is part of policymaking, right? So politics will always be a component of it. Uh, how does evidence come in? Uh, and it's just very interesting to hear your perspectives on this, the role of evidence in potentially maybe rationalizing the debate or depoliticizing the debate, or at least adding an additional voice. Uh, I'm very curious to hear what you're thinking. Uh, Tomas, the, the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree that the, um, if we bring uh, the data with us, then we actually stop the, uh, the, the political debate, which usually goes in the direction of the motion. I mean, in the language of emotion. Obviously, emotion is just the you know human uh, human being, a part of the human being, and it's really important. However, uh, the the evidence just 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 close the discussion. Obviously, you can you can present those uh, the, the data in different way, in different perspective, and we see some kind of let's say uh, uh, I wouldn't say samples because I already presented, but samples and then uh, then present uh, then use them in a different way. So. So it's 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 good it's good to have the data and it's good to have an expert who can explain the data to the politicians and and to the audience actually audience are really important even though I I, I mentioned it at the, uh, at the last but uh, you have to address the information towards the ordinary people so that everybody would understand. Thank you. Great. Uh, I'll give the floor to Claudia. Yes, thank you, Yasmin. Yes, this is a very interesting uh, topic, I think, to deal with. And I think, I mean, from, from the side of the policy cycle in the European Commission, 
bringing in evidence, it's really at the heart of the better regulation process and the better regulation agenda of the European Commission that wants to be and transparent in the, the policy, how it's crafting policies and legislation for, for Europe. So I think that's like really uh, showing and in a transparent way what are the data that we, we have used to make these, uh, to design these policies, what is uh, the models that we've used to try to understand how, how things will work and how have we chosen these specific options compared to other options based on the best scientific evidence we could access and how we do that in a transparent way. It's really a way to show that, okay, the way we, we make policies and we design policies is based on evidence and evidence serves to, to show that the choice was made on, let's choose the, the best option that, that we have available and let's do that on the basis of uh, of science and what are the, the knowledge and scientific knowledge. And what uh, Thomas was saying is, also to help to access, like to help people to access and to see this data and evidence and to interpret it and be able to see it. I think it's an extremely important, uh, important element. And one of the, the point has to be, let's be transparent of the data on the data that we use. Let's be transparent and, and clear on what is the evidence that it's uh, at the basis of every every policy that is designed and, and thought and then proposed uh, in the legislative uh, uh, process because of course at the end it's not uh, a final decision but it's the the proposal based on uh, the best possible evidence available. Thank you so much Claudia and you're kind of very curious also maybe based on your experience in the the FIA program uh, how was evidence able to maybe depoliticize the situation a little bit uh, and maybe you have a broader perspective on this this big question well, yeah, no, it, it, I don't think it's, it's possible to, de to depoliticize it, um, especially in the Netherlands, where there is quite a, a heated political debate about um, migrants and their position in, in society, um, especially at a political level, but also at societal level. Um, but what we see is that um, uh, when you have um, statistics which show um, people uh, uh, and, and, and st show stakeholders what about what what the problem really is then you can discuss about that and you can have an open discussion about it um and as long as also you can you can make well, the, the dutch are also known for their uh, entrepreneurship so uh, as long as you can also make clear that um for example i i, I mentioned the the example of objectifying the recruitment and selection process We've, we we face huge labor market shortages right now and we can show employers that if they um, uh, apply this objectifying uh, recruitment process, they can gain up to 30% more candidates for a, a vacancy. So um, for, 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 yeah, for, for a job. So um, if you apply this and you get 30% more uh, candidates um, and your um, uh, 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 um, well, another employer in the same uh, uh, field does not do that, you're ahead of him or her. So it also is a uh, business case, also for um, municipalities because they pay a lot of municipalities are in the Netherlands are responsible for the welfare. Uh, and if they can cut down on the budget when more people are working, they can use this budget for um, for other purposes on the short term. So it, that, 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 that knowledge really helps. And it's also um, a way of also, you can also use politics to um, create more, more urgency. Uh, and what we saw as well is that um, disruptions like uh, the COVID crisis 
really made visible that um, the people in the in the lower um, uh, uh, well in, on, 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 in, in the bottom of the labor market um, uh, uh, were laid off uh, very quickly and most of them were people with a migrant background and this was really uh, showed a lot and really helped also people uh, uh, helped stakeholders to well, it was a call for action because they were really the, the, the labor market inequalities were really shown and really visible at that moment and topped off with that that, that was topped off with the um, uh, the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement and this really created for us a momentum to uh, also collect all these national stakeholders and create this agenda uh, so we also really worked uh, we, well, we we served on the wave of uh, um, uh, well uh, um, of politics to um, create backing for our agenda. So it's 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 not not always a matter of depoliticizing. I think that's an excellent uh, excellent contribution to the story because yeah, it's not political politics is of course not a bad thing in and of itself of course and I think it's very clear evidence is not the the magic pill that uh, creates a very rational debate and exchange of views and then getting to the uh, so I think that is that is very clear but it is clear how the position it can takes within this broader policy making uh, process and we have, we've received a very interesting question for Tomas and I think it fits really well with the title of our event, especially uh, in times of uncertainty, because the question relates to um, there are people uh, or many displaced people from Ukraine are not certain yet about whether or how long they want to stay. Uh, and often they want to return to Ukraine, very understandably. Uh, and so they often prefer or invest in more short-term labor market integration, maybe uh, low-skill jobs, even though they would have higher skills because they know I'm leaving anyway. Uh, and I'm very curious, how does this level of uncertainty play into your, your policy making? Uh, how do you deal with that? Thank you very much for that question, which gives me a possibility to uh, to present how we actually deal with the labor market access. Uh, to be honest with you, if we put on our shoulders all the issue related with the job placement, job advisory, we wouldn't be able to employ more than uh, 50,000 uh, people within a couple of months. So what we did, we based mainly on the resources of our inhabitants. Apart from giving them a, a place, giving refugees the place to sleep, they actually give them, which is more important, their relations. So for the people who are hosting, organizing the job for refugees was relatively easy. That's why within a short period of time, they get a lot of possibilities to get a job. And obviously, it is like like you said, they didn't know at the beginning if they want to stay or not, if they want to send children to school or not. We consider those who actually send children to the schooling system are those who perhaps thinking about staying a little bit longer. That's why we're expecting much more children in September. So we were surprised that they didn't send us uh, not even 50% of children who are in, in, in Warsaw. So we were really surprised. Well, we offer them, we're trying to, for them to be self-sufficient. Our, uh, uh, let's say, uh, social, um, social system is not very, uh, let's say, uh, if you compare with Germany or Sweden, high. So the only solution is to get a job. All the system, if we equalize Ukrainians with Polish, all the system is concentrate on 
giving you a job and then you've got benefits. If you've got a job, you've got a free places in nursery, otherwise not, and et cetera, et cetera. So from, from my perspective, uh, probably I'm, my, my perspective is different. The refugees are really our sources and chances for development, for further development. Come on, we've got so many children in, 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 in one year. Obviously it's a problem, but if we overcome, then we've got in future more citizens, more people uh, who can uh, take the jobs. As I said, we've got a lot of job, uh, job vacancies. So, so I see it as a, as a perspective and a challenge, not a problem. Excellent. Thank you so much, Tomas. I see that we're already uh, closing towards the hour. So unfortunately, we need to wrap up our discussion. Uh, thank you so much to all the panelists today uh, for being here and your excellent contributions. I would like to uh, highlight that today's uh, policy brief and also the webinar are part of a much larger project. It's called the Sustainable uh, Practices and Integration Project. So it's short for spring. Uh, our website is www.integrationpractices.eu. And what is quite, so we were talking about, oh, there's this lacking evidence base. So one of the, the, the focus areas in this project is to map this evidence base. And they did this in different policy areas, including in employment, health, education. So definitely check that out. Uh, and we also have lots of interesting things still coming up. So uh, MPI Europe is currently working on a toolkit. So to help practitioners and policymakers, give them the practical tools to work more evidence-based and also a policymaker academy. And in addition, and I think it was very clear, uh, stakeholder collaboration is incredibly important. Uh, we are launching a conference that promotes um, further strengthening the policy research practice nexus. It's a mouthful, but to collaborate uh, across different types of stakeholders, share knowledge, and try to improve migrant integration policies together. So check out the spring um, uh, website. Thank you all for joining today. Uh, of course, also check out the policy brief that is on the MPI Europe website and do not hesitate to reach out to any of the speakers or to uh, me and my colleague Belen, who is the co-author of today's policy brief. Uh, if you're interested in being involved in, for example, giving feedback to the toolkit, uh, but also in the future Policymaker Academy, we would love to hear from you. We're always looking for feedback and input uh, from practitioners, academics, experts, policymakers. So please do reach out. Uh, thank you all so much. Have a wonderful afternoon and uh, we'll see you at the next event.